This week on The Business of Lifting Weights, we sit down with Pete Dupuy, Vice President and Co-Founder of Cressy Sports Performance, to discuss carving out a unique niche inside the fitness industry. How's it going, guys? This is Dave Thomas. And this is Brian Pritz. And we're back with episode 29 of The Business of Lifting Weights. Today, we are really excited to be joined by Pete Dupuy, who is the vice president and co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance in Hudson, Massachusetts and Jupiter, Florida. Pete, how's it going, man? Awesome. Well, awesome outside of the snow. But yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you guys having me. I also want to say I appreciate you calling us Cressy Sports Performance because that's a habit that not everybody's embraced. A lot of people still call us CP. Yeah, I see the effort in your guys' like tagline CSP, so it's always kind of stuck in there with me. Awesome. Um. So yeah, we're very excited to have Pete on. I would imagine the large percentage of our listeners are very familiar with Cressy Sports Performance. Um, you know, anybody that's an actual trainer or a coach has likely long followed Eric's side of things as far as instructional videos and posting just really good, um, you know, movement and anatomical videos. So as far as a consumer of the brand, Eric is the more fitness-facing person of the business and then Pete behind the scenes, um, which we'll get into today, uh, seems to handle a lot of the business side and a lot of the things that don't get a lot of the fanfare, but that um, re- really keep the doors open. Uh, so we're really excited to learn from Pete, one of the be- one of the best gyms in the country, kind of running the show behind the scenes. Really um, appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm the guy behind the guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just kind of a first question so listeners can have a, a visual of, of the facility. Can you talk just a little bit about kind of what it is that you do there, the layout, how everything is kind of just structured with your training? Sure. So CSP is is actually two facilities. So we've got a Hudson, Massachusetts location and a Jupiter, Florida one. I think that the layout's actually very similar and equipment selection across the two just one being considerably larger than the other and that our flagship location in Massachusetts is about 15,000 square feet with roughly 12,000 square feet of gym space. The reason that we're just about two times as big as our Florida facility is because we need to incorporate an indoor throwing component to what we do because we're we're very baseball specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 85% of our clients are baseball players and since the the seasonal components of being here in Massachusetts restrict guys from being able to get their work in outside as they prepare for spring training. We needed on-site throwing cages and uh, space for them to get in and stretch it out that way. So what is uh, necessary up here is is not necessary down in Jupiter where we have about 7,500 square feet. But as far as gyms go, we we keep it pretty basic. It's it's a bunch of free weights. It's a lot of room to get guys moving around. And and I'd say we have a, a pretty minimalist approach to, to how we equip the gym. So it's mm-hmm. not a ton of, not a ton of machines or cardio equipment. It's, it's elite FTS stuff everywhere and mm-hmm. plenty of places for guys to get their pulling in and push sleds and stuff like that. Yeah. And you mentioned that you, you build out this, the facility with baseball athletes in mind. Can you talk a little bit about how it is that you guys came to develop that as your niche? Yeah, it was it was not our plan right from the start per se. It makes sense because our first facility was a little subletted space uh, in the midst of a uh, pitching and hitting instruction facility in Hudson, Massachusetts, 
And so it's logical that a, a fair amount of baseball players came through our door, but we didn't open it with the mentality that we were going to become the baseball guys per se. Uh, that was a function of partially location, partially my business partner, Eric's skill set. He's, he's kind of known as the shoulder guy mm-hmm. and he is fond of the overhead throwing athlete. So it made sense for him to handle a lot of assessments and, and screenings for guys with shoulder and elbow issues and, Every time he did so, he learned more, and as he learned more, he made a habit of publishing more, and as he put a ton of material out over the course of the early years of our business and the years leading into it, he he positioned himself nicely as the baseball guy over time, and thanks to the internet, that gave us a reach that would allow us to be kind of nationally perceived or positioned as a baseball niche facility. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, kind of we were just chatting before the show that you guys were eight, 85% baseball players um, as part of your client roster. That's extremely high. Do you do you guys feel the need to supplement that niche at all? Is that something that you actively try to do or do you just let whomever is attracted to you as a ancillary benefit of athletes come through the door? Yeah, we're – we're positioned or, or equipped in a way that we can take care of athletes or general fitness pop from any type of background, and we definitely do. It's just that as we've we've established kind of some brand equity around this baseball angle, it's facilitated a, a big influx of leads from that specific population. Mm-hmm. But we do have a, a great collection of strength campers in the morning, and that's that's general fitness pop group training. And, and that's kind of a business within our business that does very well. And then we've got a number of people from different backgrounds who are right there in the mix with our, our typical baseball player client. But we don't have uh, a scenario where we, we segment our day to say the baseball guys are in now and everybody else comes later. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a commingling of people from different athletic backgrounds because every single person who walks through our door during our standard afternoon hours has a thorough initial assessment followed by individualized program design. So mm-hmm. it's it's really a one-by-one scenario as opposed to having to put like or we'll say similar individuals in the room at the same time to make sure that the programming syncs up. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it does. Now, do, do you guys do the same thing for the general pop group that comes in or is that strictly for your athletes? That So the reason I said we have kind of the afternoon component as opposed to the morning is because those are different as far as uh, training model goes, the morning is is all general pop, and that's groups up to as large as 15 with two coaches, and that's like program on the marker board, good thorough warm up, work everybody through as a group, and and we certainly do make modifications based on injury history or specific scenarios in the moment, but not like in the afternoon, because in the afternoon, everybody, you could be a, a 40 year old soccer mom or you could be a big leaguer with 10 years service time, doesn't matter. You're going to get evaluated individually where we look at injury history and training experience and sport of choice or specific goals, all kinds of different factors. And once that screening process is over, you're going to be handed a program that includes everything from individualized warm-ups and suggested corrective exercise to strength training materials or in the baseball population, maybe arm care protocols or whatever it may be. But I guess the short answer is yes. Every single person through the door in the afternoon hours is treated as an entirely individual scenario. You guys have developed a huge total client roster over the the course of your business, and it's very clear just from an observer and hearing you talk about that that you know attention to detail and um, customization seems to play a large role in what you do. Can you talk about just some of your 
business practices, kind of the DNA of your gym that you feel attracts people to you the most and, and keeps people? Yeah, I think um, what attracts people and what keeps them in our case are very different things. So what attracts primarily this baseball population oftentimes is the affiliation we have with professional athletes. So it's not uncommon for high school kids to say, I want to train where the pros train. And that's fine. And I do admittedly leverage our, our association with, with guys in both of our facilities. I mean, we've got, we actually had recent Cy Young Award winners in both our Massachusetts and Florida facilities this winter. And I leverage the hell out of that as I'm <laughs> kind of positioning our brand to the high school kids. It's important to me that, that when they come through the door, they have seen on Instagram or Twitter that Max Scherzer was training this morning or Corey Kluber was pushing the sled alongside high school kids today. Those yeah. are, those are things that, I mean, I'd be, I'd be out of my mind not to <laughs> put on people's radar. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but what keeps them there is not the presence of those guys because they're only here for a, a limited window of the year. Mm -hmm. And when they are here, it's what it's two hours out of a day. Um, what keeps them here, I'd say is primarily my team. It's, it's not me. It's not Eric. It's, it's this collection of coaches and personalities that collectively make up this kind of fascinating brand personality and uh, it's not it's not about the owners at all, especially as we get older. Eric and I are are in our mid thirties. I mean, we're each thirty five with two kids, and we don't connect with eighteen to twenty four year old baseball players the way we did when we started this business at twenty five. And so, I really lean hard on my team to to be the the face of our organization and the the client facing piece that that kind of communicates the overall message we want but really they're they're setting the tone and they're kind of setting the culture and the environment on their own by keeping the the training floor moving and i'm more of a i mean i'm a i'm a willing participant and advisor to the process but i let them run wild for lack of a better term yeah that's i think giving employee autonomy is a big part of especially when you go through that transitionary phase where maybe you're there and you're, you're quote, the face of the business and, and you kind of go through that phase where you step away and it starts to be more your employees and your coaches that run that, that run that member slash client interaction. Um, and, and I think there's a certain art in giving them that autonomy to kind of deliver your brand in the way that you expect, but that, that kind of suits their personality the most. Yeah, I, it was it was a difficult transition, and it's not you know when you guys can probably relate to this on so many levels as you're what about is that accurate? We lost you there for a second. Will you say that one more time? I'm oh, sorry. I said you guys can probably relate um, to kind of unanticipated adjustments that you need to make in the sense as the business becomes a little more mature. I, yes, my understanding. You guys are right around five, six years in. Yeah, we're six we're in our yeah. sixth year right now. Okay. And I, I totally yeah, so get that. When we started the business, we never for one second thought about the stage where we were going to need to start to phase ourselves out because we were becoming old and uninteresting to our clients. <laughs> it, I mean, you just don't plan on that. Um, I think that it would have been a lot more difficult for us to keep from micromanaging if uh, the two of us had not had kids. And I think what happened is it kind of just, it, well, one, it flips your world on its head and it shifts your priorities around. And it made it a lot easier for me to say, hey, it's time for me to loosen up my grip on micromanaging this culture or what I want this to be and, and be a good dad, be a good husband, be a good business owner. 
but be more of a leader that will just allow my crew to do what they do best instead of forcing or not forcing them, but allowing them to feel like they need to be what Eric and I want them to be as mm-hmm. opposed to who they really are as coaches. Yeah, and you're obviously a big believer in your clients aren't going to love your brand if your employees don't love your brand. Um, what are some like you know you talked about the the culture of the business that you want it to be? Um, what are some ways that you ensure that you're building a place that is reflective of your yours and Eric's founding philosophy, but also a place that employees love? I think that's a good question. It's kind of complex. Um, <laughs> I. I think the the key, well, first for making your employees, or not making, uh, creating a brand. You love me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The key to cultivating a brand that your employees fall in love with, let's say that, uh, is is allowing them to maintain their own identity in the process. And by that I mean, here at at CSP, we, we don't just allow our employees to create and manage their own brands, we help facilitate the process. And it's it's kind of a way that we're not stifling their creativity. We're not trying to tell them, hey, we, we own you or your output. I want to see guys create a little bit of an identity, or guys and girls, because we've got Nancy Newell doing it now too, um, create their own independent identity outside of our space in either in an internet setting or, or maybe speaking in different speaking engagements around the country to fitness professionals, whatever it may be. I have no problem with them chasing that a little bit. Um, the, the key being that they not do so while they're on the clock with us. Mm-hmm. And basically the gym is kind of like this, this testing ground for all of our staff, Eric included, um, Tony Gentlecore included back when he was part of the crew where, where they are essentially implementing content with clients, seeing what works and, and getting their ideas for all the content they're creating and, and putting out, be it in a video or blog format or in presentations, whatever it is. It's all originating on our training floor right there socializing with our clients. So if I tell my staff, hey, you can run wild with creating great original content and brand it as uh, the Strength House for Greg Robbins or Bonvec Strength with Tony Bonvecchio, um, all of them have their own thing that they do. Um, I have no problem with the content being created in our gym featuring our clients, of course, with the client's permission and, and so on. And I think that helps them fall in love with the brand purely because we're giving them some freedom. We're supporting their own, their own cause. And, and to them, the business is the the foundation upon which they can build that personal brand and mm-hmm. they can leverage their affiliation with Eric or with CSP as a whole to give themselves a little bit of fat fast track to maybe a bigger following or a slightly larger audience. Do you guys ever run into any issues or do you anticipate running into any issues with coaches that come on? And I have to imagine you guys have a very, high criterion for the coaches that you hire. And like you said, I'm sure they're interested in leveraging the notoriety of Cressy sports performance. And Eric, do, do you, is it ever a concern that people, that the life cycle of your coach is going to be short and that they're going to want to want to move on and do their own thing? Or, or do you find that coaches really want to stay and be a part of the culture? You know, it, it is always a concern for me because I've, I've got myself convinced it could happen at any moment, but it just kind of doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have really fantastic employee retention. So my longest tenured cl- uh, employee is a guy named Chris Howard. Chris was an intern with us in 2008, and he's rolled on through. Um, wow, that's, a, that's he, amazing, actually. 
yeah, we've got a great crew. So I've I've basically lost. Um, well, we've had a couple of office managers transition out just because, you know, one of them, her, her husband got relocated for work and another one, uh, her fiance played pro ball and she had to transition away. So in scenarios like that, yeah, we're going to lose an office manager from time to time. But as far as our coaches go, I've seen two coaches basically move on. You've got Brian St. Pierre, who's now with Precision Nutrition. Mm-hmm. And when, when BSP came to us, he started as an intern and when he, it actually started as a job shadow, he came in for a day to observe and, and Brian was helping me put together our power racks on the day that we were getting started on a day that he was supposed to be observing. And I said, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I think I want to be a strength coach for a little while, but my passion is sports nutrition. I'd mm-hmm. love to get into performance nutrition. And that's where Eric chimed in and he said, I know Berardi. You, if you show us that you know, you're, you're able, we'll make a connection someday. We'll make that happen. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. So that's a logical transition. Brian's, you know, he's like a right-hand man to Berardi now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe his title is the Director of Performance Nutrition for PN. And then the other one we lost is Tony Genelcore. And for Tony, that was just a function of, you know, I, I was not in a position to pay Tony what Tony warrants mm-hmm. as far as dollar per session go. I mean, Tony's a, a big-time name in this industry as far as I'm concerned. And he was in a position where he could open up his own shop in in the Boston area mm-hmm. and charge three hundred dollars an hour. I can't I can't justify that paying it out to a coach when we've got this this stable of of high quality current and former interns who could be hired at any moment in time and do a great job. Mm-hmm. So it it was a logical transition for him. And at the same time, I I think I have a hard time acting like it was some sort of failed scenario when Tony was a co-founder. He worked with us for eight years. Mm-hmm. And, and moved on to something just as good. So that's that right there is kind of my roster of lost coaches. Yeah. And so do you guys typically hire younger up and coming coaches, or you know, do you have do you look for people that are more established in in the industry and have a lot of experience? We actually only hire through our internship program. That's it. So. Okay. If you're going to work for us, it, you you will have typically completed between three and 500 hours of coaching hours on our training floor and demonstrated that you're a fit with us culturally. culturally you, you mix well with the team, with the clients. You have a complete, comprehensive understanding of our business and training model. So the great thing about that is when we make a hire, there is no onboarding process. That's awesome. There's no, there's no training. There's no resources tied up. In, in bringing a new member into the team, they've, I mean, you can certainly make the argument that those resources were tied up for hundreds of hours prior when they were interns, but that's an ongoing process. I mean, I have, I have uh, typically right around 20 interns per year per facility. So we've really, we've fine tuned that onboarding and orientation process and their, their continuing ed process before, during, and after our program. So it's a, uh, it's a scenario where I can't, I can't mess up a hire. I mess up intern hires. I don't want to say frequently, but it's it's a hell of a lot more common than us making a bad paid hire because uh, it's there's just too much of a sample size for us to make an, a poorly informed decision when we put someone on the payroll. Right. Yeah, and I I, uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit more a little bit more about that, Pete. Like I, I one of the trends that I notice is. You know, facilities that are going to be lasting and facilities that are doing very well of all the owners that we've talked to, they each have their own coaches onboarding program, whether it's their own certification. Um, So, for example, at our gym, we have our own entire complex 
certification for our coaches mm-hmm. because you know I'd say half of it is knowledge based, but the, the really the overwhelming majority, at least fifty percent, is cultural based. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about does it does your decision to have that internship does it lean one way or the other training culture or is it just to get people ready for the entire brand? Uh, do you mean from the perspective of how we prepare them coming into it? Like why, why it is that you have that internship program for your business? Okay. So um, I guess it's, it's primarily to create coaches that are going to be an, an extension of our brand who are really thoroughly prepared to make an impact once they're out in the industry. Uh, and honestly, the, the interns have become such a part of the fabric of our business that we're not, you know, our, our clients are actually excited every time a new batch of interns come in or sad when we transition some out. And, and so we have this, this roster, it's about 165 former interns right now. And, and there's this, this kind of camaraderie and and family nature of it. And they're all in a private Facebook group. That's kind of an invitation only type scenario where we collaborate as a group to share job opportunities or, maybe fascinating articles that people come across or uh, invitations to seminars, all kinds of stuff. It's, it's this really cool forum where everybody collaboratively helps push each other forward. And I, I don't know that it was necessarily our intent when we created our internship to end up in this place, but it's become this unbelievable network and resource for us and our former interns. And so that's, that's kind of the most beneficial part of it, but they are very helpful around the gym. They're, they're confident and able coaches. It, it takes about two weeks for them to be up to, you know, where they need to be, to be really, I, I feel like better than average coaches mm-hmm. and kind of as far as the industry as a whole goes. And, uh, they're huge comp- contributors. They're, they're such a big factor and they kind of keep the place interesting because it's, it's easy to feel like things get a little redundant as we're in the busy season and staff's a little burned out and tired from the grind of, tons of baseball players coming through and a transition of intern classes from the fall into the winter is like this breath of fresh air that, that kind of kicks everything back up a few notches for Mm -hmm. those next couple months where we're riding out the storm. So they, they have such a huge impact on our environment and it's cool because our culture is, is shifting all the time based on these new personalities that we're bringing in and not shifting so dramatically that we lose who we are as a brand as a whole but shifting in the sense that the personality of the training environment can can kind of evolve over time and and just be new and fascinating for staff and clients. Yeah, that that's really cool. I, I could I could definitely see how it didn't even occur to me just the freshness of of new people coming in, new faces, new voices would have a positive impact on just the day to day. But I could totally see that. Yeah, and the, the place where it becomes a little I don't want to say concerning, but where you can run into issues is if clients or parents maybe attach some sort of stigma in their mind to the term intern, right. like they think that you're, you're putting these incompetent coaches in front of their kids. So we're, we're very cognizant of, of referring to our interns as coaches in the appropriate scenarios, but you know, the regulars, they're not idiots. They, they know when a new, a new intern, when they see them, they know mm-hmm. who our regulars are. And uh, it's kind of tiptoeing this fine line between understanding who, who we're, we're looking in the eye and saying, this is coach so-and-so, and who has been around for so long that it's insulting to them if I say, this is coach so-and-so. He's not yeah. an intern. <laughs> and so it's, uh, 
you know, it, it it's a, I guess there's a certain amount of social awareness in how you yeah. position your interns in relation yeah. to clients. No, I, I get that completely. Um, so I want to ask, how big is your internship program? Well, ours is not an internship program per se. It's, we, we have an actually a, a pretty unique setup at our gym in that we our our aim is ultimately to take former members and turn them into coaches. So, oh. um, we usually have a system where a member has been um, active at the gym for a period of two years and um, they then begin to transition by, you know, we, we literally wrote this like long ass manual that's like 250 pages with images and here's how to do the movement, substitutions, all that stuff. Um, that, <clears throat> that took a, a long time <laughs> to put together. Um, and then from there, uh, they go through a period where they're shadowing some of our more experienced coaches for a while. Um, we go through a whole phase where they get trained on how to do a proper walkthrough, um, how to, how to communicate in the proper way. That's a big one for us. Just kind of basic public speaking. Um, and then from there, it's just, they're kind of assessed how ready they are as far as when they get classes on their own and things like that. But we've found it to be hugely successful in my clearly biased opinion. I think we produce really good coaches. However, the challenge is, which is why I can kind of relate to what you're saying with the phrase intern is our challenge is sometimes people will be like, well, wait a minute, this person's a gym member and they're a coach now. Um, so they, they think there's just this, I think people think everybody goes to like an eight year doctoral program before they can become <laughs> a coach. Yep. Um, yep. I get it. And, and it's it, just you know what, case, one of the so. issues we run into in that same context with if you say I transition a client into an intern role, um, what what scares me is that as they're so in love with your business, like I'm sure their performance 360 clients were like, I'm going to work here someday. This thing, and you have to say to them, we're going to be pulling back the curtain here, and you're going to realize that this isn't the rainbows and butterflies that you positioned it as in your mind. There are staff meetings. There are there are performance metrics. There are there are managers managing your your output, mm-hmm. and that's that's a difficult dynamic to manage because they want to work for you because the place is like their dream, and then they get there and you're like, hey, this is still work, <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, it's and, uh, it's funny to watch that transition. And that's certainly the challenge. And one of the things you know we're, we're a couple years into doing this now is separating: do you want to be a part of the brand or do you want to coach? And those are two separate things. You know, we've seen people that wanted to be a part of things, but maybe when it came down to it, didn't really want to actually coach and walk the floor for four straight hours and, you know, put their hands on people and be exhausted kind of at the end of the day. Um, So that's kind of something that we're still, still navigating, but we're, we're starting to get down pretty well. Yeah. And just one, once you think you've got it figured out, you'll get kicked in the teeth yeah. <laughs> and realize there's a whole new set of problems. <laughs> um, so I want to take a, a little bit of a different turn here, Pete, and ask you just about your personal background. Um, you sure. are our first guest with a master's in business administration. So a man okay. of high scholarly levels. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about just some ways that formal business education has, has helped you run a business and maybe some ways where it has not prepared you at all? So it's funny. Sometimes people ask me, was the MBA worth it? And in my mind, I'm like, well, everything I learned as an undergraduate business student was was pretty much what I needed in this. But at the same time, the master's program did two things. First, it 
it put me in the right place at the right time. So when I graduated, it, it almost perfectly synced up with when Eric Cressy approached and said, hey, I'm thinking of starting a place and I want a business guy. What do you think? Uh, and that kind of serendipity was was a function of me choosing to go to business school. But beyond that, I think that it, it taught me the art of networking and the importance of of having an, an extremely broad network. So stepping outside of this little fitness bubble and and establishing relationships with people from different industries and different professional backgrounds and and it was it's kind of an art I think learning how to mingle in that sense and uh, it's a little bit of a lost art in the fitness world because all we do is try and learn from each other and read each other's blogs and pat each other on the back and just it's it's this tight knit community but it's this little circle that just seems to go round and round and so. Um, Business school taught me to to kind of think differently and and leverage my relationships with a lot of different people from a lot of different cultural backgrounds, a lot of different professional backgrounds, and a lot of different areas of interest and expertise. And it's been huge because it it impacts the way that Eric and I run our business. Um, I, I think that a lot of people run gyms in the fitness industry, and I feel like we run a business in in the fitness industry if that makes sense makes and, perfect, uh, sense. perfect sense yeah yeah i mean we're we're <laughs> concerned with operational efficiencies and you know maximizing every every ounce we can get out of the the time and energy we're investing so we were businessmen first gym owner second and what a lot of people don't know is that eric cressy was a business school student i mean that's how we met he was um eric and i were randomly assigned freshman year of college roommates at a time that he thought he wanted to be a certified public accountant. And uh, I had no idea what I wanted to be. I was at Babson College, a business school outside of Boston, because my dad said if I could go back in time and do it again, I would have gone to business school. And and thankfully, I listened to him because it was a great decision. And when we were looking at schools, I, he said I had my whole list of colleges in New England that I wanted to look at, and none of them were business schools. And he said, I'll take you to every single one of these schools, but you need to apply to Babson College and Bentley College, which are two go-to business schools in our area. And, you know, he was the one paying those application fees and driving <laughs> the interviews and stuff. So I said, sure, why not? And thankfully, I fell in love with the idea of it once I started getting those campus tours with those schools and realizing that this business school setting was where I was going to get to know some powerful people and and people who were players in industries that were are far far bigger than fitness i mean the the guys it's funny as much as eric has become a a big name or identity in our industry it's it's like he's this big fish in a small pond but some of the guys that we were classmates with are big fish in big ponds i mean Mm -hmm. the, the guy who lived next door to eric and i our freshman year and who ultimately went on to be basically my best friend in the world was the sixth employee at facebook and oh so wow! Yeah, we are. We were surrounded by entrepreneurs of that nature yeah. in business school, be it undergrad or graduate school. So that's a really long-winded way of saying it was worth it, but maybe not for the reasons you think. Not because yeah. it made me exceptional at you know managerial accounting or something like that. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And I was going to ask you about the background and how you and Eric came to be business partners. It sounds like you were friends first. Um, Oh yeah. Roommates first. Yeah. And that's so same thing on the other end of this microphone here, we were college roommates and teammates and all that. Now, when, when Brian and I started our gym, it was really based on, I think a level of comfort and that we knew each other very well and that we had a a background of kind of a friendship and a trust that we thought would be successful. 
However, we did not really know the extent of how um, kind of appropriate our business relationship was. We came to find out that we were opposites in all of kind of the perfectly correct areas to be opposites in. And we really complemented one another's skill sets where I am extremely lacking in areas he's very strong and vice versa. Is that something that you and Eric have? Is it something that you had? Is that a big part of your success? How do you think that that factors into it? I'd say that describes us to a T. So uh, Eric is the idea guy, and I'm the guy who pumps the brakes and says, let's let's do this idea. (laughs) He'll hit me with 100, and I'll say, let's go with this one. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of like um, you guys read the E-Myth. By yeah. Michael Gerber, where oh, you've yeah. got the, what is it, manager, technician, and entrepreneur. Yeah. I think that we hit all three, and we overlap on entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So, so Eric That's is – a good way is, to put it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important if you're going to have two of you, it's important that you touch them all, and it doesn't matter which one you overlap on as far as I'm concerned. And so we overlap on entrepreneur, which is great. Uh, Eric is a technician, obviously, and I'm a manager. Uh, he'll tell you if you were to ask him what's your least favorite part of this business, and he'd say managing people. And it's it's not my favorite part, but it's probably a little more my responsibility than his these days just because he's he's overseeing two facilities in a lot of way and being the face of the brand, whereas I'm keeping Massachusetts cranking along and, and mm-hmm. kind of managing the brand as far as the internet goes. And if you look at those three facets, we do a nice job of covering all three. And I, I, I couldn't even tell you what I'm a technician at. If I had to pick something that I'm a technician, I'd say – maybe social media strategy mm-hmm. for us, but it's not what I went to school for and it's not what I necessarily want to be known for. I'm it's, it's, <laughs> it's not pretty much, it's pretty much my explanation that I am not a technician. <laughs> yeah. That's a really cool way of putting it. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, can, can you maybe just take, take a quick minute and just expand for people that might not know what you're talking about between the phrase technician? Um, you know, what, what, what you mean by that? So by that, I mean, Eric is a, a guru when it comes to assessment and programming strategy. Like he's, he's technically, very, it, I mean, a, we'll say a world leader yeah. in, in assessing a, a shoulder, an ailing shoulder, or someone with a unique injury history. And you can be a phenomenal coach and technician, a, a, you know, a, a person who's very skilled at one specific trade and still be garbage at being an entrepreneur or being a, um, an advocate for yourself or promoting yourself. And I'm sure there's some outrageously talented, brilliant coaches in our industry who none of us are ever going to hear about mm-hmm. because they're so, they're so tied down in being a technician that they don't have an appreciation for how important it is to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and, and be a little bit of a self-promoter. And, yeah. and I don't mean that in the selfish look-at-me way. I just mean you have to have a certain component of understanding how to stay on people's radars if you want to take technician coach and make that into thought leader. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, Pete, what were some of the obstacles that you guys faced when you first opened, when you guys were younger, when you were just starting your partnership, and my guess would be didn't really know what you were doing? (laughs) Yeah, we were – I mean we were kind of working with an upper hand in relation to maybe young gym owners because – Coming out of Babson, my school's um, claim to fame is it's the number one entrepreneurial study school in the world for like more than a decade running now. Wow. And and that's what they really pride themselves on. They create small business owners who turn into big business owners. And so we did have 
a an undergraduate curriculum that mandated that we had all the basics covered. So accounting, operational strategy, marketing, all of this stuff was hammered into our heads over and over again. And Eric spent two years there before transitioning out and pursuing exercise science. So he had a pretty good foundation of that as well. And he's obviously very well read. Um, so the obstacles that come with like managing our books and stuff like that were not big. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of our biggest obstacles were the limitations that came with being perceived as young. So, 25 year old business owners asking, you know, parents in their mid forties to give us their money for their high school kids to train. They see us as kids who could be their oldest kids. You know, they, they had kids in college who were just finishing up who were almost our age. And so that was a little bit of a hurdle to get past. And, and that, that even trickled down into stuff like, for example, obtaining insurance for a gym when you've never owned a gym and you're 25 years old is surprisingly expensive. (laughs) And so, (laughs) We, uh, that's the kind of insurance or sorry, that's the kind of obstacles that, that we found ourselves tackling. And, uh, it was a blessing and a curse, I guess it was a a blessing because being so young and being able to hustle so early by the time we were here, we are in our mid thirties, not necessarily old. We have what's considered a pretty old business in this industry. Um, and the, the curse though, was that it, it just affected every component of like negotiating leases and getting insurance and kind of negotiating with parents just because we were perceived to be uh, immature both age-wise and intellectually, and that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a maybe not a common challenge, but it was a challenge for sure. That, that's literally the exact reason I grew a beard was to was to <laughs> appear older. I've got a lot of baseball players who say that. <laughs> We've got a pro guy named Tim Collins who who got to the big leagues at, at like 21 and he had this little baby face and he just spent years trying to grow a beard because he was sick of <laughs> child in, in minor league baseball. You guys sh- should have done the stepbrothers approach and worn tuxedos to the gym just to, uh, just to appear uh, more mature. Yeah. It's uh, in, in hindsight. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff our minor leaguers would do now. Just also. Um, are there any areas that, you know, rewind 10 years ago to where you are now that you have, corrected that you you know maybe you didn't like when you first started that's operating like a more well-oiled machine now um i think we've become a little bit more responsible about our pricing strategy there were there were loopholes in our our payment structure that allowed clients to take some advantage uh so to as a frame of reference we when we started our business it was 99 dollars for an initial assessment and then training was basically $45 a session. And you could you could pay session by session. You could bring us a check for a big batch. But we didn't really discount for bulk. And we didn't have any mandates that you had to buy certain packages. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a huge deal initially. But as time went on and we started to capture this baseball niche a little bit, what was happening is people from outside of the immediate radius of our business were discovering us and uh, reaching out. And so people from... 30 minutes, 60 minutes, sometimes people coming in from Maine or, you know, Southern Connecticut on a Saturday coming in for this baseball expertise, they'd come in, they'd pay $45. We'd write them a whole program and we'd say, we're going to write you material. You're going to follow your commercial gym or your home gym or high school, whatever it may be. And then come back on Saturdays and we'll coach you on Saturdays and you'll do the rest of this offsite. You'll get huge results. And that's great. They followed the program. They got results. They, they loved it. But Maybe they'd come in on week one and then life would get in the way and 
three weeks later, they'd send us an email and they'd say, hey, I'm in this Saturday and I need a new program. I'll bring my $45. <laughs> and we were writing like 16 days of individualized training material for 45, 45 bucks a pop and then right. coaching two and a half hours through it. <laughs> and it was like the worst loophole ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we, we adjusted it, but that was a big hurdle to get past when we had to standardize across the board, hey, everybody, you got to buy at least four sessions at a time. And and they're use it or lose it if you're going to be getting a new program every time, yeah. and that was a major headache integrating, and you know it had to happen mm-hmm. obviously, but it was one of the mistakes we made as a young business because when we started this in 2007, there was not a whole lot of semi-private training going on. Right, it it just hadn't taken hold yet, and Eric was hell bent on making it happen, and and it wasn't this outrageous concept. But there weren't any gyms that were doing it with individualized programming like we were, saying not only are we going to do a five-to-one client-to-coach ratio, but we're going to give every one of those five guys a program that's entirely different from the next person. Mm-hmm. And so we were we were kind of creating something that didn't exist and figuring out where the headaches were going to be as we went. And so in hindsight, yeah, if I launched a gym today, I'd I'd have a much clearer picture of how my price points would be and how we'd structure the way the gym flows. But it was stuff we were just we were making everything up as we went. Yeah, I mean, our, I didn't have walls the first day we we when we started. We had our client training clients in a corner of a space where we were having a build out taking place around them, and there was <laughs> there was a boombox that was getting moved around the gym, and we'd put in our gym mix CD. Oh, that's and, God. That's so you man. You guys are OG. You're playing CDs as workout music. <laughs> yeah, we had a we had like a five disc turntable. It's still in one of the drawers in our office. <laughs> and I, I'll bet you the CD that says like "Get Ripped Gym Mix Two on <laughs> is in that turntable if you were to open it up. And I can I could tell you like every song in order on that CD in my head right now. I I mean it was. It was just our give, life. Give for us, like give us two songs on that mix. Oh, "Lose Yourself" by Eminem. Of course. Yep. <laughs> remember the name. I will. Yeah. I will. I would rather just like slam my head against the wall than listen to like <laughs> on BP mixes Jay-Z. everywhere. Yeah. The Jay Z Lincoln Park mashup. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard that CD, and I guarantee you it's well over five hundred times. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I can relate to all that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> things like Spotify and Pandora, those didn't exist. I, I remember starting like it's going to change our world, <laughs> and it did. <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you know, you mentioned that you were working out in the corner of a space when you first started. You guys now have over twenty-two thousand combined square footage of your facilities. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about just some of the things that you have looked for when you're going through a lease and then some common mistakes that you think people might make when they're looking for a lease? Oh yeah. And this is stuff I've written about a ton. I know. I got it. Pete Great article on there about this. So listeners go check it out. Yeah. I think it was like 10 considerations for finding your next gym space and 10 considerations for signing your first lease. And I did, I would cover them in that order because the first, um, the former basically says, like, here are the, the logistics that you want to keep in mind as you pick out a space. So uh, natural light, high ceilings, um, clean sight lines. Like, I, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is that they're so eager to open their first gym and, and they're just they want it to happen like yesterday. 
that they compromise on the quality of their space in relation to the needs of their clients or their training model. So they've got blind spots in their gym or they've got a like an L-shaped space and athletes are warming up without eyes on them while you're coaching deadlifts on the other end of the L. So things like that are, are so important and often overlooked because people just want to move as quickly as they can. Um, I think additionally one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is having a, a clear-cut conversation with a landlord about noise expectations and, and how you're going to use the space because there's a lot of weights being picked up and put down and typically tenants, uh, you know, fellow tenants in the building who don't have any interest in a bu- bunch of 25-year-olds coming in and deadlifting right. business hours. And uh, those are those are things that you just, you're so enamored with the process and the idea of getting your name signed on that first lease that big conversations don't happen. And I can tell you that for probably the first three years we were in the building we're in now, I had an angry neighbor, we used to call him pig face because he came in with his angry (laughs) little squished up pig face every single day. He'd come stomping in and he'd say, where's Eric? And I'd say, Eric's not here. I'm Pete. And he'd say, well, I want to talk to the owner. And I'd say, I am the owner. Your name's not Jesse. And I'd I'd be like, look, we had this conversation on Tuesday. (laughs) You know who I am. And he would come in all the time and say, my, my office is shaking. And I was I mean, for a while I was sympathetic, but then I got to a point where I said, you know what, this is my landlord's fault. We were we were fairly transparent with what's going on here. It's not like we said, we're opening a gym, but don't worry, we don't have weights. Yeah. So Zuba. it was yeah, it was a huge, huge headache that didn't go away until we relocated within our space in our building. And when that time came, we were sitting waiting for a space that didn't have adjacent tenants. Like mm-hmm. our unit actually has it's a corner unit, and we have a hallway running the length of the two interior corners. Right. So we intentionally do not have neighbors in that sense. Yeah, we follow the same exact approach, and I've always like really respected the gym that can operate in like a strip mall. I don't understand how they're able to pull that off, but we like in our one of our facilities. We're on the corner. We're, we're the corner building, and then the neighbor. Luckily, they moved in after us, so they kind of had to come in with our situation and then our other gym is a standalone warehouse so i think that that is such a huge part of looking for a space is like the first thing in my opinion people can do or should do is look at who the neighbors are and how that's going to affect it so i'm I'm really excited to hear you say that as well yeah and that that also um kind of bridges with an, another important thing i think i'd cover it in the the considerations or conversations to have before you sign your gym lease and that is to Make sure that you definitively build language into your lease that states that the landlord's not allowed to bring competitive businesses in because mm-hmm. it would be very easy for one of those strip mall gyms to open up shop and be a personal training space or a boot camp, whatever it is. And next thing you know, there's a CrossFit opening next door because mm-hmm. the landlord's got space that they want to fill and they want to do it as quickly as they can with whoever's got money. And and they if there's no language protecting you, then you're basically – at their will they're going to do what they want how they want with their space and so uh, i mean just yesterday my landlord came into my office and and she had a business a proposed business owner with her and she said um you know this is so and so she's she runs a like a personal training academy essentially they they certify people to work in the fitness industry um reserve your judgment (laughs) for however (laughs) whatever your take is on that i certainly did um, but she basically wanted to look me in the eye and say, 
are you going to raise a flag if we sign a lease with this person? What's your take? Mm-hmm. And I just basically asked a bunch of questions. I wanted to know how, how they were going to use equipment, if any, what their expectations were for monetizing the space. It seemed totally fair to me. Nobody was going to be monetizing training. They were going to be teaching courses, essentially. And I just said, hey, I don't want the word fitness or athletics or gym of any nature on their signage out front, but otherwise mm-hmm. we're good. Nice. And those are the things that that's a a courtesy that would not have been extended to me if it wasn't they weren't legally obliged to do so. Right, right. Yeah, that's a big one. I know over the past few months we found some spaces and looking to expand that we've absolutely loved and we've been turned down because there's been another gym that we would have like absolutely <laughs> competed with. Um, yeah. we, we figured it was a long shot, but um, in one of them, the landlord actually just, you know, there was nothing written. He just didn't want to do it cause he didn't want to be a dick. And I, I thought that was cool, but I don't think people should assume that their landlord is going to have too much of a moral compass when it comes to filling space. Yeah. I think that that landlord is the exception and not yeah, the rule. Agreed. Um, all right, Pete, we're going to take a, a turn here. We've almost got you at about an hour and, uh, we want to let you go here in a couple of minutes, but this is kind of the conclusion that we do. Uh, it's our final four. Every time we do this, I feel the need to give Gio credit since we completely stole it from yeah. his fourth poll podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Got it. <laughs> so four questions unrelated to fitness. Well, one of them is. But first one that we always ask people, uh, who's one person in the history of the world that you would want to share a drink with and what would you buy them? That one's easy for me right now just because of what I'm reading. Um I'm reading Speak Like Churchill, Stand Like Lincoln. And so I'm I'm particularly fascinated by Winston Churchill at this very moment. So I think I'd have a cup of tea with him. Nice. And uh, <laughs> the things I've learned about that guy, um, just shocking. I, I didn't realize how fascinating that, that gentleman was. So that's yeah. my answer for question one. <laughs> he doesn't get a lot of credit on this side of the pond, but um, he was like no, a, but a do total you know badass. He was made an honorary U.S. citizen in 1963. Was he? <laughs> like, things like that. Yeah. What the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> he won a Nobel Prize for literature based on like his lifetime body of work. These things, I'm like, that is um, a boss. <laughs> yeah, Winston Churchill's the man. He's like one of those guys where I'm like, damn it, I wish I wish he was American. But I guess he is. Oh. So <laughs> yeah, technically he is now. <laughs> you say, I, I, I wish I had a cup of tea with that yeah. guy. <laughs> um, who's your favorite CSP athlete ever and why? Um, that's really hard to, to segment. Um, I'll say that the athlete I mentioned earlier, Tim Collins, Mm -hmm. he is kind of almost like my little brother. Uh, Tim's been around since day one. Actually, he, he was catching bullpens outside of our space and for about two weeks before he finally agreed to get off the, the little milk crate he was sitting on and come in and talk to us. But (laughs) Tim's my, my favorite client for a number of reasons. Um, because of his his loyalty and allegiance to our brand for starters and just his story he's a guy i always say he should have been a a disney movie (laughs) is tim's about five foot six Mm -hmm. when he came to us he was 130 pounds and uh he was a senior in high school and he couldn't get he couldn't get an offer to play college ball anywhere he was told not to apply to certain d2 schools and he was a lefty throwing 80 81 82 couldn't get a sniff and um, he was going to walk on at the community college of Rhode Island, or at least that was his intention during the fall of 2008. And he was pitching in a summer game, an AAU game. And JP Ricciardi, who was the GM of the Blue Jays at the mm-hmm. time, 
was out at the game looking at another guy who ultimately became one of our clients named Keith Landers, who was a six foot eight lefty. And he was going full ride to Louisville. And he was in consideration for first year player draft coming out of high school. And so when he went to see Keith throw, he mistakenly also saw Tim Collins throw and Tim struck out all 12 guys he faced. <laughs> and when a five foot six kid who looks like he's about 11 years old does that, it, it sets off some some alarms. Right. And uh, the the next day, Tim signed – well, Tim didn't sign anything because he was 17 and he wasn't old enough. So his dad signed consent for him to pray, play professional baseball for the Blue Jays for essentially the cost of a flight right. <laughs> down to yeah. Eden, Florida. And uh, Tim went from undrafted free agent to in the major leagues with the Kansas City Royals after a few trades three years later. That's awesome. And that's just like the craziest story. And and I'd imagine Brian can really have an appreciation for how absurd that is. Yes, I, in a yeah. I think I've heard Eric say a bunch of times that 3% of the guys drafted ever see the big leagues. And Tim couldn't even, I mean, couldn't even get an offer to play D2 baseball. And there he was in the major leagues. And now he's got five years of service time and he's still doing things in baseball. So um, he's been with us every day of his off seasons for year after year after year. He, he recently had Tommy John and he spent the whole last year with us or about two thirds of the year rehabbing with us before signing with the Washington nationals and going back to spring training. So he's just been kind of in my office for years and, and he's just been kind of a staple in the fabric of CSP and people, there was a period when he was a minor leaguer and he hadn't seen the big leagues yet that I'd say two thirds of our clients thought he was an employee because he spent so many hours in our office, just hanging out, eating all his meals, spending his whole day there. So he's, he's just been a, a pretty big component of who we are and what we do to date. Good for him. That makes me happy. Yeah. I totally know who, who that is, by the way. Like I remember him coming out of the bullpen for the Royals for sure. He was not throwing 81 though. No, he's a, he's a, he ran it up to like 96, 97. I know. I remember being like, who the hell is this guy? He's just pumping like mid nineties. Yeah, Timmy, well, I mean, he went from 130 pounds to about 172 with us over the course of two off-seasons, and wow. he, he basically physically matured right in front of our eyes. And he also, yeah, he had three appearances in the World Series two years yeah, ago. Yeah, I remember that. So he's he's no, um, he's he's not like a just a garbage reliever yeah. guy, <laughs> just kind of got tossed in. He's had some meaningful baseball innings in his career. Very cool. Uh, so as a business background guy, and obviously with an MBA, if you had to, for whatever reason, step away from running Cressy Sports Performance, what other business would you like to kind of secretly try your hand at running? Oh, I don't know the answer to that one. That's tough. <laughs> it's a decade into doing this. It's it's really become my identity. Um, in the last two years, I have I have since launched my blog and done kind of a, a bunch of speaking engagements and I've done a bunch of business consulting for gym owners and I've been trying my hand at being independently employed as a consultant as mm -hmm. kind of like a side hustle mm -hmm. and it's been very uh, enlightening and challenging at sometimes and really fun and effortless at others and um, I guess I'm kind of doing that trying my hand at running a different business and figuring out what it feels like to be a one-man show and there are days when I'm like, this is awesome. I could do this after CSP if I were to ever move on at some point. And then there are others where I'm like, I'm never leaving my gym. <laughs> so, Do you I, find that consulting clients listen to you? Yes, to a fault. I find that probably my biggest complaint about consulting is that you run into, with some frequency, clients who want you to basically tell them how to run their gym, not guide them through kind of a, 
a process where they they learn about themselves and how to maximize their unique skill set. Instead, they just want the recipe. And that that's a bad approach if you're basically saying to me, I don't want to think, I just want to recreate Cressy Sports performance because unless you can clone all of my staff members, you're you're never going to recreate what we have. Right. Just like, I mean, you can't come to Mark Fisher and be like, hey, I'm pretty crazy. I want to recreate Mark Fisher Fitness. Yeah. He'll be like, good luck. <laughs> I would fail <laughs> it in one week trying to do that. Exactly. And so that is, that's the hardest part for me when they're listening because they come and they'll be like, I'll listen so clearly that I just want to recreate every one of your systems. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I guess, yeah, I, I feel like most of them are pretty good. But I also... I, I think that there's a certain amount of engagement and interaction before we say, okay, this is a go. Let's start this professional relationship. Because there are a lot of times where I, I say, hey, it doesn't sound like I'm the right fit for you right now. Here's here's who I think you should reach out to. Because mm-hmm. I don't have the the time, energy, or bandwidth to take on dysfunctional clients. Right. It's a mistake that can kind of bury me for a couple months because they're typically four month contracts. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I mess up it, <laughs> you know, my consulting client might not come out feeling like it was a rewarding experience. And right. I feel like burdened by a call every other week. So right. it's uh, an interesting dynamic, but I'm just, I'm learning as I go. I'm a rookie all over again. Very cool. Um, last one, who is somebody in fitness business that you personally admire that might not know it? I love this question. Um, Guys like, and I say guys like because I can relate to them. Uh, I mentioned Mark Fisher Fitness. I'd say Michael Keeler. Michael is to Mark Fisher Fitness what Pete Dupuy is to Cressy Sports Performance. And he doesn't get the credit he deserves because he's a a very big brain on the back end keeping that place moving and and helping uh, kind of craft the direction of a multi-million dollar fitness facility. And no one has any idea. Mm-hmm. And and it's not that he needs that recognition. And, and I'm not saying I, I desperately crave recognition for CSP, but I just have an appreciation for the fact that sometimes it is kind of hard to to be the guy behind the guy when the things that you focus so hard at being good at uh, get passed off as someone else's accomplishments. Okay. And so guys like Michael, I know there's a gentleman named Bob Hansen who runs MBSC from with Mike Boyle, has been there since the beginning, and I'd imagine not many of your podcast listeners are, are terribly aware of that name. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of guys behind the guy that I really admire who uh, they don't do it for the glory. <laughs> Very cool. Um, Pete, kind of final question. Um, summarizing everything that you've said today, which has all been just amazing stuff, Gym industry is getting extremely crowded. Um, I'm of the opinion personally that I do think there is a type of bubble that's going to be happening um, in certain spaces. That is, what do you think is going to keep a gym open that's open right now? What do you think is going to keep them open in another five years where it might sink another gym? What do you think the most important things are? Uh, I think. What will sink gyms is falling in love with the idea of being an internet sensation or having as many Instagram followers as they can and being perceived as like somebody who's going to present at all the seminars when that's not what's important because it doesn't drive revenues. So I think the ones who are fiercely dedicated to the client experience and and customer service are going to be the ones that thrive when the bubble bursts. Uh, I mean, one of the scary things about our industry is that we are we're one of those expenses that can get scratched 
when people need to start tightening up the their wallet a little bit and uh it's it's scary as a whole i mean i was listening to a gary v podcast yesterday where he just kept saying i can't wait to watch this blow up in the next 18 months and you're all gonna get screwed (laughs) and when that happens uh gym owners are gonna they're we're gonna really feel it (laughs) and and so um one of the interesting lessons that i've learned and if you haven't designed your business all business model already you can learn and benefit from this and if you have and it doesn't connect with you then sorry but it's that uh if you you work with youth athletes and a performance segment you're kind of recession proof because parents don't know how to say no to their kids yeah and so when it does all explode and come crashing down and and mind you we built this through that remember my business started in the summer of 2007 and we climbed double and triple digit growth for years right through that headache and it was because we were taking care of 16 to 20 year old kids who had dreams of playing professional baseball and when they said to their parents the competitive advantage i need lies at Cressy sports performance i'm sorry but you got to spend the money on this the parents said all right i'm going to i'm going to drop my equinox membership so that i can keep paying for my kid to train at csp mm-hmm. and uh it it allowed us to survive what's probably coming again in the not that distant future and hopefully it will do so once again for us yeah, man, yep. man, are bad for setting up a depressing ending to the show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the end I, is I, coming. I, I get it, just be like, hey, you know what? Nothing's wrong. We're just yeah. getting, we're climbing. Yeah. <laughs> this public can't burst. <laughs> uh, remember, when I got to college, I'm so I graduated college in the spring of 2003. Uh, September of my freshman year was the fall of 99. So Eric and I walked into that dorm room. We were at the peak of the internet bubble. Every one of us walked onto campus at 18 years old and was like, where are we going to make our $100,000 a year coming out of school? I can't wait. Napster went live like week one of our college experience. Yeah. Everybody was getting signing bonuses thrown at them coming out of our program. And by the time we graduated, I took $38,000 a year and it was a pretty good paying job in comparison to a lot of my peers for my first gig in marketing. Yeah, yeah. So it... I've I've watched it happen twice in hindsight, and so I mean we all come out fine on the other end, but not every gym is going to survive that yeah. that turmoil. <laughs> um, you got anything else, repeat? No, awesome stuff. Yeah, so listeners, um, I mentioned the blog a few times. I am a a genuine fan of it. I think it's got great content. It's PeteDupuy.com. Um, also obviously check out CressyPerformance.com just to kind of see what we're talking about visuals and how they run their business. Um, but Pete, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Um, well, we will talk to you later then and hopefully maybe you can come back on the show in a couple of months and we can just kind of make it a, make it a thing where we're checking in. I'd love that. Take care guys. Okay. See you, Pete.